All right. We are continuing in the Gospel of Matthew. So if you have your Bibles and you'd like to follow along, we are going to be in chapter 21. And uh, one of the things that I've mentioned quite often over here for two years in uh, other countries, and I was assigned to teach agriculture and English at this boarding school in this little town called Tabatseka in, uh, in Lesotho, which is in southern Africa. And I was also given the task to look over the school farm. And the school farm was originally designed to help feed the students in the boarding school. And I have a couple degrees in agriculture. I have a degree in plant science. I have a degree in agricultural mechanization. So as a young guy, I felt like I was going there fully prepared. But the truth was almost all the crops that were being grown in the farm had, I had no experience with because I had I learned my a crop science degree in, a, in an area that grew wheat and barley and oats, you know, grains. And I had no idea how to deal with row crops and vegetables like cabbage and carrots and all that stuff. But, you know, plants are plants, and I figured it out. It was no big deal. But the school also had an orchard of peach trees. And uh, I don't know why, but in Lesotho, there was numerous peach trees just kind of scattered all over the country. There weren't apple trees, but there were peach trees. And, the, and folks loved these peach trees. They did these little small peaches that would come on there. And we had an orchard of peach trees at, at the boarding school that I was at. And these trees, over the years, had stopped producing. They, they were healthy. During the spring and summertime, they put on, you know, nice, thick, green leaves. It wasn't as though they were, they were diseased or anything like that. They just stopped producing fruit. And I really didn't know why because, like I said, my background was in grain. It wasn't in trees. So I had to learn about trees. And so I started to study trees. And I, I, just, I read this book. That's all I had to go on was how to prune trees. So I, learned, I started pruning the trees. And sure enough, after I pruned them, some fruit came on the, the next year, but not very much. So one time my wife and I were on a holiday for a week or two, and we came back, and someone in the school had hired... A, uh, a guy in the village that had a tractor to plow all the fields. And so the person had plowed the fields and he had also plowed the ground in between the trees and scattered upon the ground were all the roots that had been cut and pulled up to the surface. This plow, by going in between the trees, had just cut the roots of the trees. And I was just like, oh my gosh. <laughs> you know, it was frustrating because it felt like every time I tried to do something, something would set it back all the time. But you know what? Spring came around and those trees produced so much fruit that the branches couldn't even hold them. I had to go out and like, take off fruit or else the branches were going to break. It never produced fruit like this before. I'd never seen anything like it. And later on when I was reading the Bible, I actually found a scripture verse that kind of deals with what this is about. Uh, there's a passage in Luke that says this, and Jesus is talking about uh, fruit trees because Jesus very often uses the parable of fruit to describe the relationship we have with God. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Uh, he talks about the Gentiles being a grafted, a wild grafted olive branch into the, the vine of Israel. And he talks about us being fruitful, having the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. He often uses fruit. And he said this, this is him speaking. He told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. And he went to look for fruit on it and did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, For three years now I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? 
Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year, and I'll dig around it and fertilize it. If it bears fruit the next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. And what happens when you dig around the roots, like this guy was going to do, you end up pruning the roots. And what happens to the tree, and this happens also when you prune it from the top, the tree feels like it's under attack and that it needs to reproduce in order to survive. And it's not like they really have brains, but this is what you're, all, this is what you're messing around with. And so a tree that doesn't produce but is healthy, the reason why it's not producing is because it's comfortable. A tree that not produces fruit but it's not diseased, it has nice thick leaves on it but there's just no fruit, it's because it's comfortable. It feels like it doesn't have to reproduce. Everything's fine. So when you cut that, when you prune it, and when you chop uh, those, those roots a little bit, the tree freaks out, thinks it's going to die, so it starts to produce fruit. And then if you fertilize it, you, survive, you help it survive. You're kind of manipulating the, uh, the tree. And I found this interesting then, the scripture talks about this, because Jesus, as I said before, talks a lot about being fruitful, and what it means to be fruitful, and what the expectations God has for those who follow him to be fruitful. So in Matthew 21, starting in verse 18, it says this. This is after Jesus' big day. We talked about it last week where Jesus rides into the, to Jerusalem on the donkey. He overturns the tables and the money changers. He chases them all out. Then he brings people to the temple to heal. And then he has a little verbal sparring with the Pharisees and goes home and goes to sleep. It was his big day. And it says this uh, after that. Early in the morning, as he was on his way back to the city, because he was staying in a village called Bethany, he was hungry. Seeing a fig tree by the road... He went up to it, but found nothing except leaves. It was healthy, but comfortable. And he said to it, may you never bear fruit again. And immediately the tree withered. When the disciples saw this, they were amazed. How did the fig tree wither so quickly, they asked. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. If you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what was done to the fig tree, but you can also say to the mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and it will be done. If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. Now, at first glance, this is kind of an odd story. And as a plant guy, my, at first glance, it's like, wow, Jesus, you're being kind of mean to the fig tree. You know, there's other things you can do here besides, you know, curse it to die. But you have to remember how Matthew writes his gospel. Matthew very often takes an idea and he brackets the central idea with, with, uh, with kind of an overall thought. If you think of it like a sandwich, Matthew will take uh, an idea, then he'll have, which is the bread on each end of it, and then in the middle is, is the meat. And if you jump down to verse 43, it's a long ways down there. You see kind of where Jesus is coming from, where this is coming together. And after all the stuff in the middle, which we'll go over today, Jesus ends this big teaching. And the way that Matthew writes it, he's very stylistic. Matthew's very stylistic in his presentation he says this, Therefore I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. He who falls on the stone will be broken into pieces, but he upon whom it falls will be crushed. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them. And they looked for a way to arrest him. But they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. So in between this, this story of Jesus cursing the fig tree and then at the end we figure out what this is all about when he says, therefore the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to people who produce fruit, we find what this is really all about. It's not that Jesus is short-tempered with fig trees. It's that there's, a, there's an overall lesson that he's teaching here. 
And the passage that we're going to be looking at is really one about expectations. The expectations that God has for those who serve His name. You know, very often, in the, and rightly so, when we talk about uh, the Gospels and, and the teachings of Jesus, we often land very much on the grace of God, the grace of God. It's by grace that we are able to, to continue in this journey of faith, even though we fail at times, because in the grace of God, we have been granted the righteousness of Christ, not through anything that we have done, but because everything Christ has done. And under this umbrella of righteousness, we have the grace to grow in our faith, to fail in our faith, to get back up and start again and continue that journey of faith, the grace of God. But we can't just go in that place of grace without also understanding God does have some expectations for us. It's kind of like raising a child. A lot of you are parents. You have a child. You love your child. You know, your child could, could make a mistake or be even disobedient to you as a parent. You're not just going to immediately throw them out onto the street. There's a grace that you'll extend to them. But you do expect you know, your child to develop and to grow and to grow in maturity, to grow in, in, uh, in social manners, all these things you expect them to grow in. It doesn't mean you love them any less when they fail. It just means you, you have reasonable expectations. Well, God is the same way. You know, he puts us under this place of grace. That's why we call him our Father. He puts us under this place of grace where he loves us, where we can stumble and fall and get back up. But he does have expectations. And these expectations, when they're not met, are often referred to by Christ as being fruitless, not bearing the fruit of the kingdom of God. So let's go back, the, and, and Timothy describes this kind of thing as you know, having a form of godliness but denying its power. Not Timothy, but Paul when he's writing to Timothy. And so let's go back now to this encounter then that Jesus has right after he curses the fig tree and tells uh, the disciples that, you know, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you could do this. You could tell a mountain to jump into the sea. If you have any faith, you can, there can be serious fruit that is produced in your life and for the kingdom's sake. And now going back up to verse 23, it tells us this. And this, this is the, the story in between the verses about fruit bearing. Jesus entered the temple courts, and while he was teaching, the chief priests and elders of the people came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked. And who gave you this authority? Authority was a big deal. It's kind of this top-down, you know, why, what makes you think you have the right to speak in the name of God is what they're asking Jesus. What gives you the right to turn over the money changer tables and say, my house will be a house of prayer, but you've turned it into a den of robbers. By what right do you come and, and allow people to come and to be healed in this temple? By whose authority do you have this? And authority is a big deal. Even in the churches today, like our Orthodox brothers and sisters, and the Eastern Orthodox in particular, they have this big idea of apostolic authority, that the authority of the priest has been handed down through the generations of priests laying, uh, the disciples laying the hands on their disciples, and then those people laying hands and, and, get, and transferring authority. And I've, many times, Orthodox priests will have a little relic, which is a, a symbol to them of their authority. And, uh, for example, I knew an Orthodox guy who had a pressed flower as his relic. He was given this pressed flower when he became a priest, and he was told that this pressed flower was one of the flowers with which Jesus was buried. And so this became, for this Orthodox priest, his relic that was sort of a physically tangible proof of his authority. But Jesus doesn't really have that. You know, Jesus doesn't go through any kind of formal training. He's not really allied with the Pharisees or with the Sadducees. He just kinda, he's a carpenter's son. That's why people are saying, who is this guy? 
He's not really a, 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 a priest in the sense that people saw authority. He's just this guy. So Jesus knows this, and he knows that they have this hang-up with authority. And so he does what he often does, is that he doesn't really answer the question. <laughs> he just kind of shoots back with a question of his own. He says, well, I'll also ask you one question, and if you answer me, I will tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. Hmm. John's baptism. Now he's talking about John the Baptist, not John the disciple. John's baptism. Where did it come from? Was it from heaven or from men? In other words, was John's baptism, John was baptizing to prepare people for the coming kingdom of God. And Jesus asking him, this baptism, was, it, was he responding to the authority of God? Which would mean that people, those that were preparing for the coming kingdom of God and who were baptized and John recognized Jesus as the Messiah, that would pretty much let them know where Jesus' authority is coming from. So he says, is it coming from heaven or is it just some man-made thing? Is John just some guy running around doing his own thing? They, being the chief priests and the Pharisees, discussed it among themselves and said, hmm, if we say it's from heaven, then he'll ask, well, then why didn't you believe him? Particularly believe him in who Jesus was, the Messiah. But if we say it's just from men, then we are afraid of the people, for they hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. These, these folks could be our politicians today. <laughs> you know? If we make any kind of real stand, well, so we don't know. And Jesus kind of shoots back and goes, you know what? Then neither by what authority am I doing these things am I going to tell you. I'm not going to tell you. If, you're not, if you don't have the courage to respond to me honestly, then I'm not going to tell you. You can figure it out yourself because they really already know. But we see in this that Jesus expects better than this from people who are supposedly representing the kingdom of God. He expects better than this. He expects them to recognize John the Baptist's role. And he expects that by recognizing John the Baptist's role, they would also recognize Jesus as the Messiah. In fact, the story tells us that the chief priests and the scribes do recognize that John was special. And they do recognize that many of the common people saw the uniqueness in, in John the Baptist's role. And especially given the preceding day where Jesus had come in riding on a donkey and had thrown over the money changer temple in the temple and, and healed people in the temple, they knew this guy was something special. They were just afraid to deal with what it would mean, the consequences that they would face of recognizing that Jesus was the Messiah. So they just said, well, we don't know. To which Jesus responds by ending the conversation and launches into some parables about being fruitful and the expectations of God for those who claim to be the people of God. Jesus says this, What do you think? There's a man that had two sons. He went to the first and said, Son, go work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and went. And the father went to another son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. Which of these two did what his father wanted? The first, they answered. So in this parable, it's a simple parable, pretty straightforward. Jesus presents the father as, a, as a having two sons. These sons are obviously teenagers uh, because he tells them, you know, go do this. And their first response is, I don't want to do this. And then he thinks about it and he goes and does what he's supposed to do. And the second son says, I will do it. 
Then he thinks about it and decides he's going to do what he, does, what he wants to do, which isn't to go do what he's supposed to do. He's just going to go off and mess around and play around. And Jesus says, okay, well, which, which, of, them, which of them really did what his father wanted? Because Jesus understands there's a difference between what comes out of our mouths and what we actually do. And in this case, the first son actually was disobedient in what came out of his mouth. He said, no, I'm not going to. Some of our German brothers and sisters might say, he wasn't disobedient, he was just being honest. In this culture, he's being disobedient. When dad tells you to do something, you're really, the only response you're really supposed to have is, yes, sir. But he didn't. He said, I'm not going to do it. But then he goes and does it. And it's clear that Jesus understands that what comes out of our mouth, if it doesn't match up with how we live, then it really doesn't mean anything. And in fact, it's how we live that really is the measure of obedience. And so because of this, he's really telling these religious leaders, he's asking them the question, going back to that first one, who fulfilled the expectations of the father? The first son or the second one? And then he goes on to explain to the, to the Pharisees and to the scribes and to the chief priests who they are, which son they are. And Jesus says to them, I tell you the truth, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. Now, for those of you who may work for the tax service in Germany, uh, just know that the reason why they're always hammering tax collectors in the New Testament uh, is because tax collectors were considered uh, working for the Roman government. They were working for the occupying government. They were foreign agents within the country, and they, you know, obviously didn't like them. But he, he, he compares the first son to these tax collectors and these prostitutes, people who on the outside look like they are the bad people, they are the disobedient people, but he says they are the ones who are repenting, they are the ones who are responding to what John the Baptist said, they are the ones who are responding to what I say. We have the story in the Gospels about uh, Zacchaeus, who was a tax collector. You know, remember he climbed up the tree to see Jesus, and Jesus invites him in, uh, says to Zacchaeus, Jesus invites himself to Zacchaeus' house, I'm going to eat with you today. You know, we see these stories in there that there's these stories of repentance and people that were on the outside. The first inclination is to look at them and say, they're not the type of people who are kingdom people. And then you have these people that look like kingdom people. They have the robes. They, have the, they, they dress nice. They say the right words about God. But they're fruitless in what they're doing because at the end of the day, they're really just using religion as a way to sort of placate themselves, make themselves look good, maybe somehow affirm themselves. Who knows what all the reasoning is in between their ears there. But it's anything but serving the kingdom of God and producing fruit. And then immediately after this, Jesus launches into another parable. He says this, listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a wine press, and built the watchtower. He rented the vineyard to some farmers and went away on a journey. When the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. So again, kind of setting up a very agricultural thing here. This is all-inclusive vineyard, which you can see these to this day. If you travel to Israel, you'll go to vineyards. They have dug into the rock this pit, which is the wine press, and they still function to this day. You can go see them if you want after the sermon. And in this, there's a clear, you know, it's kind of clear. God's the the vineyard owner. The tenants are the people that are like the chief priests and the the Pharisees and the law givers and all that stuff. 
And he expects then to produce fruit that he will come and he will also gather from that. But you know the story probably. It says the tenant seeds the servants. They beat one, killed another, stoned a third. And then he sent other servants to them, more than the first time. And those tenants treated them the same way. So this is obviously a, a, uh, a metaphor of the prophets that were sent to the nation of Israel during the whole Old Testament, trying to get Israel back on track. You know, Ezekiel telling them, you know, you guys are completely off the reservation here. If you want to know the Lord, if you want to be restored, you have to come back. You have to repent. You know, all the different prophets. Isaiah, Jeremiah. Jeremiah was, you know, he was, he was constantly being thrown into prison, thrown in a well a couple times. I mean, just miserable how these guys were treated. But it doesn't change the expectation of the landowner. The landowner still expects fruit from his vineyard. And he expects those who are working in the vineyard to be producing fruit. But they just want to produce for themselves. Whatever benefit there comes from it, money, power, prestige, whatever it is that's coming from it, that's what they want. You know, it's interesting in history, at least from our tradition, the uh, we're Baptist church, when Constantine, who was the, the Roman emperor, which is a saint uh, in our Catholic friends, when he took over and becomes the, the emperor of Rome, he wrote this thing called the Edict of Milan, which was a toleration of Christianity. And it really was, begin, it was the turning point that Christianity went from being a persecuted sect within the Roman you know, pantheon of, of religions and whatnot to being the main religion of Rome. And a lot of people see that as a good thing. But there's a lot of historians that call that the fall of the church. Because at that point, Christianity went from being a small group of people who were very deep, 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 deep in their conviction and in their faith to being a, a kilometer wide, but only a few centimeters deep. You know, it went from being this church that was persecuted, but the people who held to it were strong in their faith to being this thing that wasn't persecuted. But then it became convenient to be a Christian because the emperor was a Christian, and this changed everything. And the church became this beaten down, impoverished group that were very deep in their faith to owning almost half of Italy at one point. The Catholic Church managed to forge a document that was called the Donation of Constantine in which they claimed the Constantine the Emperor gave them almost a third, more than a third of Italy, close to half of Italy. And these were called the Papal States. And those stayed in power for a long, long time. Money, influence, power, all these other worldly fruits People wanted to keep. And these are the folks in the vineyard that don't really want anything to do with God's fruits anymore. And that's not to bash the Catholic Church. That's just history. You can read it. You can find out for yourself. The donation of Constantine is no mystery. It's clear what that was really about. So then, it says this, Last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. These are, this is obviously a foreshadowing that Jesus is giving of his own crucifixion. And from our perspective today, this is very, very clear. But Jesus then asks an important question to the Pharisees and the scribes. And you'll see, he says this to them. He says, therefore, 
When the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? Jesus is totally setting these folks up. And they're listening to the story, and they must be very engrossed with the story because they answer very honestly. They say, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end. And he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. Now understand, it's the people that Jesus are talking about, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law and the priests who reached this conclusion. They replied, he will bring these wretches to a wretched end, they replied, and then they're continuing to talk, and he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of, crop, of the crop at harvest time. Have you ever been in a situation where you were talking to somebody and you kind of put something out there like you wanted to see what their response to something would be and it's clear that they're not getting what you're saying and by their own words they kind of condemn themselves? One time, you know, again, uh, in Germany you kind of know that there's a big thing about whose fault anything is, right? If something goes wrong, you need to find out whose fault it is. That seems to be more important than the issue itself. And I'm not saying one way or the other. I'm a guest in this country. This is just an observation that finding fault seems to be the most important thing. And one time I was in a discussion with someone and I clearly did not believe that this thing was my fault that it got started. But I just kind of said, all right, fine. Let's just say it's all my fault. Is that what you want? And the person went, yes, that's good. And I was like, wow, you just completely missed where I was going with that. And that's my fault. You know, subtlety was not, was not the, the, the tool to use at that particular moment. But Jesus basically tells these folks, what's going on here? Whose fault is it? And they say, it's these wretches in this vineyard. They're not doing what the vineyard owner wants. They're not producing fruit. fruit. He's going to bring those wretches to a wretched end. And you're like, mm-hmm. And then it says, Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the Scriptures... The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. So he's kind of mixing two metaphors here where he says, you know, the capstone is the stone that sort of holds everything in place. Uh, Like when you make an arch in stone, that capstone, the keystone, is the one that holds it all into place. And then he says, then he goes back to the metaphor of the fruit. Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you You that basically condemned yourself with your own observations when it comes to this story, it's going to be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce fruit. He who falls on the stone, then he goes back to this capstone, he who falls on the stone will be broken. Broken is okay. But he on whom the stone falls will be crushed. Crushed is not so good. And when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew He was talking about them. They looked for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. You know, sometimes God, through his Holy Spirit, or his word, or even his people, will often have to share hard truths with us in our spiritual journey. Sometimes it's a hard truth to us individually. Sometimes it's a hard truth to us as a community. And how we respond to those hard truths is going to really determine how quickly and how well we grow and how much fruit we produce. Because the hard truth is like being pruned or it's having those roots cut. 
It's sometimes painful. And sometimes when it happens, we think that our spiritual lives or our physical lives are in danger and we kind of freak out. But also what often happens when crisis comes into your life, and many of you can give testimony to this, is you find yourself suddenly being way more interested in Christ than you were before. You know, when the crisis comes, very often that drives Christians back to God. where They've gotten kind of complacent. You know, they've gotten comfortable. There is no real stress in their life, and they've gotten somewhat fruitless, and churches do this all the time. The Southern Baptists, I came from a Southern Baptist background, and they really got into this idea about 20, 25 years ago about just planting churches because they noticed that church starts had way more converts coming to those church starts than established churches did. And do you know one reason why those church starts had more converts coming to them? Is because the people starting that church were out on the streets, banging on doors, talking to people, handing out flyers, doing everything they could to get people to come to the church because they needed to survive. And in that process, they ended up being, bringing in a lot more people who were actually converts to the faith, whereas more established churches have a tendency to shift membership around. But very often they don't bring new converts in. Why not? We're too comfortable. We don't have to go banging on doors and talking to people and handing out flyers. We don't have to do those things because we're fine. We're comfortable. And this is kind of something that we have to be aware of as IBCD as well. We're considered, we'd be considered an established church. Now we know what God wants us to do. He wants us to go and reach the disciples for the gospel and make, uh, reach the nations with the gospel and to make disciples. Reach the lost, make disciples. Reach the nations. We change that to reach the nations because we're an international church, and make disciples. And one of the hard questions we have to ask ourselves is, are we doing that? And there's some things I think we can look at and say, sure, we're producing fruit in these places, but there are times I think that we can honestly, if we're going to be honest with ourselves, kind of say, meh, kind of comfortable. We have our nice little place in the woods, sort of away from, you know, all the, all the, the, the negative noise and whatnot of the city. You know, all the cities are kind of a mess. We have our little retreat. And that's fine, because I know a lot of folks need that, because you're internationals, you're in, in a country that you're not familiar with. You need a place that you can just kind of relax. But I do think there's something to be said about being a church that would be in the midst of the city, where you have the prostitutes, where you have the drug addicts, where you have all the pain that goes on and the brokenness that any city brings. To be in the middle of that, reaching out in the name of Christ, instead of in a forest, preaching to the squirrels and the birds. You know, St. Francis of Assisi, that was good for him, but I'm not St. Francis. It's just a thought. It's one of the reasons why you've probably heard, you know, we're going to have to move probably in a couple of years, well, about 15 years, but maybe we'll move sooner. Who knows? It's something to be aware of. What kind of church do we want to be? A fruit-bearing church or a comfortable church? And a quick way to check yourself is how you feel about receiving hard teachings and how I receive it and how we receive it as a community or in individual places in your life is just how do you react to it? Do you react out of it with anger, with arrogance, with fear? Or do you react out of it to these things with the fruits of the Spirit of love, of joy, of peace, of patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control? How do you react to the challenges in your life? How do you react to the idea when you ask yourself, am I a fruit-bearing Christian? Or am I just hanging out in the vineyard? 
how you respond to that, and that's kind of a bit of a pointed question, right, has a lot to do with the quality of the fruit in your life. Do you want to hear the hard things so you become more like Christ? Or would you just rather not? And I can tell you, I know people well enough, people will say, I want to be told, you know, if I have some difficult thing in my life or I have something in my life that's getting in the way. We always say that until someone tells us. And then we find out, do we really want to know that or not? And that goes for everybody, includes me as well. So we need to be mindful of the heart that we bring to the vineyard. Are we serving out of our own desires, out of our own expectations, or do we want to seek the expectations of God? Because the expectations of God are pretty clear. For a church, he wants us to reach the nations with the, with the gospel and make disciples. The end of the gospel of Matthew makes that clear. All authority on heaven and earth has been given unto me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, teaching them everything that I have taught you, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And lo, I'm with you always until the very end of the world. And for the individual Christian, what does he want you to grow in? What are the areas in your life that he wants you to bear fruit that you've kind of avoided so far? Maybe a habit you're into that you shouldn't be into, or maybe uh, an attitude that you have that you really need to, to check at the door and, and reconsider, an attitude toward brothers and sisters, an attitude toward God, an attitude to whatever that's getting in the way of you being transformed more into the image of Christ. And as we head into 2022... You know, I don't know what this year is going to bring, but so far it looks like it's going to have just as many challenges as 2021 had. There's nothing on the horizon that tells me it's going to be any easier. Nothing. That's fine. We don't have any choice, right? You can only move one direction in time and in history, at least we do, and that's forward. So we have to deal with what we've got. And you know what? God can turn something that is a very difficult situation into something amazing. So... What are we going to do as we meet the challenges ahead? Are we going to face them together with an attitude of Christ, looking at the expectations of Christ, or do we want to be self-centered looking at our expectations? My prayer is that we want to, of course, look forward to the, the expectations of Christ. I pray that for myself individually, because, man, I know my own heart, and I don't think you guys are that much better than me, maybe a little bit, but not much. So I know some of your hearts. And there's some things that we probably need to, to evaluate. And as a, as a community of faith, it's the same thing. If we want to be fruitful, follow the expectations of Christ. Because my desire, and I'm sure many of you is the same, is my hope that is when I do face God at the end of my time, and there comes that judgment, I'm not afraid of my salvation, but we, I believe we will be judged. Our works will be judged and weighed out and see. And the, words, the only words I really want to hear from God aren't here's your crown or here's your, your mansion on the lake or whatever your reward is. I want to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. That's it. If after that I get a tiny little cramped apartment in the, in the, in the city of the Lord, I don't care, which I don't think that's going to be the case. I just want to hear, well done good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the depth of your word. And Lord, as you talked here to the scribes and the chief priests, I know personally I'm very mindful that you're talking to people who are considered the religious leaders in your community. 
But we also know that according to your word, we are all part of your community. We are part of the body of Christ. Those of us who are believers, we're part of the body of Christ. We're part of the temple of Christ. And we all make up this temple of the Holy Spirit, so we are all going to be held accountable. There's certain degrees of accountability. We know that. But we all will be in that place. And Father, I pray that we will all, through the power of your Spirit, be able to search our hearts and say, all right, am I living a fruitful life? Or am I living a comfortable life? And if those things can't live together, Lord, may we have the courage to choose being fruitful over being comfortable. And you know my heart, Lord. You know I'd love to be both comfortable and fruitful. But if that's not possible, may we have the courage to choose fruitful over comfortable and meet your expectations, not ours. May we have the eyes to see eternally instead of just temporarily. And may we have a hope that extends upon, extends further than just what we see happening around us, but a hope that extends into who you are as our eternal God. And we thank you. We thank you for the, the grace of, of, that you gave us through the cross. But we also thank you for those hard words that remind us that we don't want to get too comfortable in who we are at the expense of following who you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, our worship team's going to come and lead us in a...